Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Thank you so much for answering the Cattleman's Call and joining us on the podcast today. Our topic is going to be centered around the direct-to-consumer beef business. On the phone with us today are three young cattlemen that have similar but different direct-to-consumer beef businesses. Our goal today is to share the successes and the challenges that come with a direct-to-consumer beef branded business. And I tell you what, I'm very excited about what is in store for us over the next few minutes. And uh, let's just take time to introduce these individuals. From Illinois is a fourth-generation farmer and cattle producer, Jake Perino. Jake, uh, thanks for joining the show today. Yep, how you guys doing? Well, I'm doing good here in, in Montana, and I know uh, our, our next two guests uh, are taking time away from the operation as well. Uh, yeah, in Kentucky, we have an eighth-generation beef producer. Joe Lowe is on the phone, too. Joe, uh, how, how's your afternoon going? Pretty good. We got sunshine and 70 today, so glad to be here. <laughs> well, we got some misty weather here in Montana today. It's kind of cold, so enjoy that sunshine. And, and finally, a fifth-generation Angus breeder from Missouri, Travis Merrick, joins us. Travis, how, how are things this afternoon for you? Things are going pretty good. Enjoying the spring weather. Well, again, gentlemen, I just want to thank you all for taking time away from your operations here today. It's a, it's a very busy time. No matter what the circumstances in the markets or whatnot, we all have things to do in the countryside. As we take time to, to share our thoughts on the direct-to-consumer beef model, uh, uh, Jake, you mentioned that uh, you guys are in the thick of planting corn right now. Uh, of course, that, that uh, ties into your operation, of course, with that direct-to-consumer model. But uh, could you talk more about uh, your family's operation in Illinois and uh, just uh, your passion for the industry and why you wanted to stay a part of production agriculture. Yeah, so we farm in northwestern Illinois. We plant primarily corn and soybeans, alfalfa, and wheat, and then we also raise experimental seed beans and parent seed corn. And we also raise cattle. We've been raising cattle since about the 1940s. And we put up a brand new monoslope beef building two years ago, and we've noticed the performance in our cattle have done very well. Our sickness has gone down. This building is truly state-of-the-art in the way that we feed them, the way that we handle them, and the way that we care for the cattle. And ever since this building has gone up, we've gained a lot of good perception from the public and our communities of people that want to see our new building because Illinois is not known very much for cattle because we raise corn and soybeans. So having a new beef building in the state definitely gains a lot of attention and we've had a lot of positive feedback from people, um, people interested in our meat. We've noticed our private sales have gone up and then we're also shipping more and more beef to Aurora as well so we can help feed people around Chicago. So could you better describe what the monoslope uh, uh, cattle building is for our, our friends at home that aren't familiar with it? What, what, what's the architecture behind it? What, what's some of the technology uh, that, that it has to, to really help your operation and, and also a great talking point with consumers? So with our building, it's got a single angled roof and it is open to the south so that the whole point of this building is to capture sunlight and shade. And in the wintertime, when the sun angle is really low, 
the whole building will have sunlight all the way through it. And then when the sun angle is really high in the summertime, the whole building is going to be shaded so that when we have black-heighted cattle in our building, we're not going to worry about performance, uh, exhaustion, or any heat issues with black-heighted cattle in the summer. And we put a visor on the front of our building. And again, in the wintertime, this visor, it really helps because it'll increase the amount of sunlight and heat that's going in the building and it's definitely about five degrees warmer inside the building compared to the outside air. We also have climate control in our building so that we have curtains that drop down automatically. And whenever the temperature gets too cold, there's too much wind out of the north, or if there's rain coming in, those curtains will drop down to help our cattle be more comfortable. And Jake, uh, as we look at that, uh, let's maybe talk about uh, your family there. Uh, what's the dynamic uh, on the place there, working with family, and, and what, what what's that structure look like? So for me, my father manages our grain division, and he primarily takes place of anything that revolves around dirt. And then I manage our livestock division, and I manage anything that's on a hoof. We still work hand-in-hand together. He'll help me do chores in the morning or haul corn or help me in our feed mill. And, you know, I'll help him. I'll run the combine. I'll run the grain cart. You know, we we work back and forth with each other. When it comes to managerial decisions, we are both separate so that one person is not making all the decisions and having all the responsibilities for the grain farm and the livestock division. I also have a very supportive mother that helps take care of us, bringing food to us in the fields, uh, shuttling my dad back and forth from field to field, making sure that we've got everything we need for the day so that we can just keep on moving. Great, great. Well, thanks for that quick introduction, and I I look forward to learning more about uh, uh, the operation and the uh, involvement that you have uh, with consumers uh, there at home. Uh, Now we're going to turn our attention back to Kentucky with Joe Lowe. Uh, Joe, uh, let's talk about your family operation. Eight generations uh, in production agriculture here in the United States. Uh, I I just think that that's incredible to to hear a number that high and continuing the family legacy. Uh, Let's just talk about your, your family business yeah uh so my dad started our registered cow herd in 1976 77 i believe uh but before that we did a little bit more like jake did uh, we had a commercial cow herd we fed cattle because uh, if you want to think back 100 years there wasn't a fed cattle industry much farther west uh, so we're positioned on the railroad halfway between louisville and nashville so we'd feed out fat cattle and ship them to uh louisville or nashville just right on the rail um so that's kind of where the cattle feeding experience was they did backgrounding and kind of everything and in that aspect of production agriculture but more recently uh what we do everything we do is 100 percent registered angus uh, we'll sell about 100 bulls a year uh, and we do a kind of a, a data-driven maternal focus uh with our breeding program so most of our bulls are going directly to commercial cattlemen uh we're selling top-end commercial replacement females for guys uh that kind of thing so day-to-day it's just my father and i um, and we've got uh, a little bit of part-time college help. There's a university close to us here. So uh, let some college kids get some good experience on the farm. And uh, we kind of share in the decision-making. Uh, we, we sit down every every week, my mother, my father, and my, my mother's an accountant. Uh, so we kind of sit down, go through the week's plans, where are we going this week, next week, a month out, that kind of thing. And also in Missouri, Travis Merrick joins us on the phone right now. Uh, Let's talk more about uh, your your family's fifth generation o- operation. Of course, you are Angus breeders as well. Uh, uh, let's share more about uh, your, yourself and your family. 
Yeah, we've had this uh, property here um, starting back with my great-grandfather. Um, I took over management just a few years ago, started the the um, beef store side of the operation. Um, 2018, we started selling beef directly to consumers here on the farm. We started out with uh, killing our own cattle, which we've, we've retained ownership for as long as I can remember, back to the 70s. My grandpa was one of the first um, breeders to bring a performance-tested bull from the Y plantation in Maryland to the east of the west of the Mississippi. So data performance records have always been something we focused on. So through our retained ownership, we knew that we had the quality of carcass. For the last three years, we've been 99.5% choice and prime. And anyone that we shared our beef with, they wanted more. And so we were sort of realizing that we have the quality, people want the quality, so we partnered with the Certified Angus Beef brand and shipped our cattle to a place near Kansas City that was an affiliated packer with Certified Angus Beef. And unfortunately, due to some harassment, frivolous lawsuits, that plant was forced to shut down, which was a family-owned feedlot with a covered barn. The kill plant was right there. So we've had to transition back to killing our own cattle here on the farm. Um, my customers are aware, though, that at times when we can't, get enough beef into the store from our own cattle, I do supplement with certified Angus beef still, and they understand that the quality is what we're shooting for. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm glad you brought up uh, the situation about uh, the relationship that you had with that uh, uh, local packer and feedlot that was shut down to harassment. I mean, how how big of an impact did that have, not only on you, but but other producers that was reliant on, on that facility? Uh, what what kind of a backlog did that create? And, and uh, what was maybe that uh, discussion around the kitchen table that you had with your family, knowing that you had to do something different and, and you had to pick up the reins yourself to do that direct-to-consumer model? The hardest thing for us was being able to market the ground beef or other other cuts we weren't moving as fast, ribeyes, fillets, and tri-tip would move faster than anything. So with my cattle we would send, I would only have to bring home the beef that we needed. So if I needed three cases of ribeyes, that's what I would go get. Mm-hmm. And anything else was marketed through through Valley Oaks with their with their program to restaurants nearby. So that's really created a an issue with having enough of the, the steaks and roasts and stuff that we had a demand for. And, and most of the producers that were there were other local Angus producers sending cattle to Valley Oaks. So it really kind of took away some of the, the local beef and people knew where it was coming from. And it was obviously high quality with the covered barns. I know Jake talked about the, the quality of life for these cattle. I mean, there, there's low stress. Um, our cattle for sure graded excellent at that plant so it took a lot of direct sales away from from people needing to get their steers locally mm-hmm. uh, joe jumping back to you let, let's maybe talk about uh, how your family traditionally marketed cattle um uh, uh, again and then also maybe looking at that conversation that that you all had at uh putting a pencil to creating that direct-to-consumer model, and what was was there any resistance, or what was the opportunities that you all talked about? Um, traditionally, we've sold everything as bulls. Um, we're in Kentucky where we've got about a million cow-calf. Uh, we haven't really diverted anything from our bull 
population until this year uh, to go into the direct marketing program. Um, our direct marketing program started last fall. I had one heiferet, and when you end up with a thousand pound open heifer in Kentucky, she's not worth anything as a sale barn. You can't do anything with her. And so I said, you know, let's just put her on feed, just kill her for herself, and see what it does. Um, so when we look at my background, I actually went to the University of Louisville uh, to do economics, and I didn't intend on coming back to the farm. Uh, but when it came time to graduate, I was kind of like everybody else. I didn't want to go get a real job, so let's go to grad school. Uh, and I did ag econ at UT Knoxville. Uh, and in the time I was in grad school, I was like, you know what? I, I kind of like the numbers and data. I like the aspect of, of what we're doing breeding cattle. I think I do want to go back. Um, so when, when I came back and kind of put the numbers to the paper, I mean, you're, you're getting 80 cents a pound for a thousand pound heifer at the time. Uh, so it was kind of just a way, anything that would go out in great choice, if we put it on corn for 100 days, 150 days, let's put it in the freezer. Because um, on what you would consider the buy side, I was making $200 on it. Uh, and then on the, I guess, the consumer relationship, um, I went to a major public university in a large city. Uh, so most of my college friends, they're not in agriculture. They're, they're not used to agriculture. So I kind of had, had a built-in market for those people that wanted to know where their food come, came from. They wanted a local product. And so we kind of just started with one animal. How does it pencil out? How does it work? What do I have to get? And, um, and sold that one pretty quick from scratch, I think, in, I don't know, maybe a month and a half, two months. And then so we, we took other open heifers that we bred that didn't take and put them on feed. And uh, you get a young cow that lost a calf, put her on feed, and just kind of throw corn in front of them for a while. Um, and the way we market's a little bit different than what, what Travis alluded to. We don't have a retail shop. I don't have time to set up a retail shop on the farm. And he kind of mentioned the issue with getting rid of the ground beef. Um, so if somebody wants two ribeyes from me, that's fine. But we do sell it in a package that they're getting ten pounds or they're getting five pounds of ground beef with it. So we're we're able to kind of allocate out our steaks and our ground where they're running out of beef at the same time. Um, from a distribution model, uh, I met my wife in Louisville. Her family still lives in Louisville, so we kind of set up and take orders for a X number of days, seven to ten days. And, fill a couple of freezers and go up there and make a distribution. Um, so a lot of people where they would traditionally sit at the farmer's market for two hours, uh, load up, don't know what they're going to sell, probably sell a lot of steaks, a little bit of ground. Uh, we just hop in and we drive to Louisville. We drive around for two hours, do doorstep delivery. And uh, it's been very well received. Um, I know for the longest time we have a CAB retailer here um, in Bowling Green close to us. I just go buy steaks there. I mean, we wouldn't eat our own. We wouldn't kill our own because uh, we didn't want all that ground beef. And you see consumers at the beat case, and they're very confused a lot of times about what they're going to pick up. Uh, you'll see them jump. They'll, they'll go pick up a roast. Then they'll go pick up fillets. They'll kind of look, oh, what about a strip steak? They, they have no idea what they want to cook. Um, so what we're able to do, we have a direct contact with those consumers. Oh, I want to cook this today. So I tell them, okay, yeah, you want this? And so I have a very trusting, loyal consumer base. Um, a lot of my orders, I think, a couple weeks ago, we took uh, we took probably about half a beef up, and 90% of them were reorders. So um, we're getting a lot of people, especially during uh, this crisis going on, we've kind of replaced the grocery store uh, for them. Well, thanks for sharing that. Very interesting. And, and Jake, for yourself, uh, I know we were talking about uh, your monoslope uh, building as well, but uh, obviously you mentioned that your family's big into crops as well. 
What what was that uh, conversation like uh, at uh, your kitchen table with your dad and family members, uh, looking at that opportunity to take what's produced out on the on the farm ground and also uh, implementing that on, onto a livestock ration as well? Uh, did you hear from consumers that that would be a great opportunity to make money? Was it uh, an idea you had, a conversation you had with a fellow producer? What what really sparked the idea of uh, finishing that beef at home? So the biggest thing that we saw was that we did have a lot of excess grain on our farm, and we do ship it to ethanol plants mainly. And we've always we've fed cattle for years, and we had an old, outdated feedlot where efficiency just wasn't there, health risks were high. We just weren't as efficient as we could be and realize, you know, hey, if we want to do this, we need to do it better and we need to invest in a new building. And it was to the point where our old outdated lots, they just they needed to be tore out and we need to build something new. So we sat down and we decided that we're going to continue to walk our grain off the farm on the hoof and still put our grain on cattle and be able to sell it, sell the corn through the cattle, basically. And with that, we decided, you know, we we were pretty good at feeding cattle and we needed to keep doing it, but we needed to get bigger with it. And with that, our private market really, really sped up. I wish I could be like Trav and have a retail store where I could do that. But I I applaud him for that. But I don't have that commitment to go out and have that luxury, even though it would be very nice to have. I'm more like Joe, where. I've got a very good loyal customer basis that I've built up for about the past 15 years. And I started doing this when I was in grade school and selling beef to people. And my dad just said, you know, go ahead and do it. And I kind of pocketed the money that way. And that's how I reinvested in our cattle. And then as time goes on, I've saved up and been able to sell enough beef where I'm able to go ahead and say, you know, Hey, we're going to go ahead and build this new building. And so we did, we still have a large customer basis that's evolving. We feed close to a hundred families right now, privately through the sale of strictly quarters, halves or whole beef. We don't sell, you know, a steak here, a steak there. We sell direct quarters or halves to people. And these people come to our local butcher which is a very good butcher. He's about 27 years old that runs his store and they go to him and they go and pick it up. And then we have a deal with people over the summertime where if they buy a quarter from us, come out to our farm, bring your kids, bring your grandkids, bring your brother that's from the city that's never seen a farm and we'll show him the cattle, we'll show him what we feed them and we'll put him in a tractor so he can drive it around and see what it's like to be on a farm because we realize there's a big disconnect between the consumer and where their food comes from. And we're trying to fill that void if we can. Now, no, Jake, staying with you on that, I think that it leads us into a very good point about consumer engagement, the knowledge that you share, the facts that you share. Um, how have you equipped yourself to, to, to have those, those real facts um, to, to engage with these producer or sorry, excuse me, with these consumers and, and show them the ins and the outs of what you do out in the countryside? How did that really play into your marketing strategy? And what are some tips you have for our listeners out there on how they can uh, engage with those consumer and listen to, to, to needs or questions that consumers have that could impact how you uh, uh, make decisions on, on the place? So we've learned through time that there's a lot of uneducated people out there that 
they just they, they hear one thing on the news or on the radio and they think the whole farm economy is bad, whether it's pesticides, herbicides, Monsanto, beef, hormones and cattle. And the best thing we can do is educate people, but not throw facts at them. Mm-hmm. People, one question we always get all the time, are your cattle hormone free? And I say, no, that's that's not the right question you're asking. All living beings on this earth have to have hormones and able for them to live. And they just don't understand that. But what they're trying to get at is, are you adding synthetic hormones to your cattle? And then we go in and describe to them what we do with our beef, how we raise them, whether or not they did have implants put in them. And we try to tell them the facts of why we do it, what beef prices would be like if we didn't have the implants, the pros and cons to it. And we just try to inform them and tell them what we're doing is morally correct with our cattle. We're raising them right, raising them humanely, and we're treating them very well. And then if they have any other questions, I say, why don't you just come to our farm and I'll show you what we do on a daily basis. You can see the animal. You can see how they're treated. And you can see it with your own eyes what it's really like. And we realize that our biggest thing, we just need to teach people. We just need to educate them on where their food comes from and what the farmer is actually doing. (laughs) Uh, Joe, back to you, kind of on those same lines. You know, you mentioned that you go back to Louisville, uh, make your deliveries, uh, have that interaction uh, with the individuals and families that are buying your product. What what have you learned from those consumers? Uh, maybe some questions that you receive from them, and, and how how does that improve your your business model? I, I'm actually shocked that my experience has been so different from what. I thought it was going to be. Uh, I thought my questions were going to be a lot more like Jake gets, where tell me about hormones, tell me about where your food comes from. That like the they they want to know everything. And honestly, I've only been asked one time if our if our beef is grass fed. I have not been asked one time about hormones. Um, I'm not sure why that is. I think a lot of it is people are just trusting me to kind of regurgitate a lot of beef council information whether it's recipes or quality basically when they buy from us they know it's going to be dry aged at least 21 days and it's going to be at least usda choice or higher so a lot of my customers tend to be upper middle class suburban families in Louisville that are used to eating at a high-end steakhouse getting a 50 dollar filet uh $80 bottle of wine. Those are the people that tend to buy from me. Uh, I'll also get some that are kind of like your, your farmer's market crowd. They, they feel good about buying a local product. Uh, and with COVID and everything going on with it, they're probably less likely to go to the farmer's market right now. But they, they either knew my wife growing up or, or they knew us and said, hey, I, I trust them personally. Uh, and, and then I get a few there where when we cut our ribeyes, every ribeye we do is inch and a quarter bone in. Uh, you, you get those guys that like the craft beer and the smoker, and they want to want to sit around the the grill on a Saturday night and kind of tell their uh, tell their buddies, oh yeah, I got this meat guy, and he drops this off at our house, and that's what we got this week. So, uh, I wish I had more of a story like like Jake does, where where I'm kind of able to advocate for our traditional production practices, but I flat out do not get asked about it. Um, everything kind of comes back to quality grade. It, is it? I, and the only thing I say about quality grade is. I'm driving 21 to 28, whatever my, however long my butcher's going to hang it for me. And if it's not choice, I'm not selling it. And right now, I mean, I, I got, I'm sitting in here and I'm with a pen of fats to go next week. Uh, and I'm out of stakes. I've been out of stakes for a couple of weeks. So, I mean, it, it's moving based off that. Uh, 
I mean, yeah, I wish I gave you more on, on advocating for, for our production. Well, Joe, I mean, you, you bring up that, that quality is a big factor, but you, you also mentioned a trust is a big factor that these uh, consumers have yeah. in you. Yeah, and one, one thing Dad told me, because I, I originally kind of floated the idea, I finished up grad school in 2013, I thought about, hey, let's, let's buy some customer tabs and let's feed some out, let's, let's sell some quarters. You know, like I, I thought that that might have some traction to it. But, I mean, seven years ago, this direct marketing thing wasn't quite what it was, quite quite what it is now. Um, and we, we kind of, like I said earlier, we kind of took this as an opportunity stuff that we would be taking a discount on. Let's let's finish it out and sell it that way. And we, we can save some money. If anything, we eat for free. Worst case, we shut it down. we got a freezer full of beef. Uh, and early on, when we were pretty successful with sales, uh, my dad liked to remind me, you're not grading 100% prime. This is not the best beef in the world. This choice is good, but... They're buying you. They're mm-hmm. trusting you with the product. Uh, so I, I think that's the biggest thing anybody listening to this thinking, hey, I want to get into direct marketing. I've noticed a lot of people, especially in our quarter business, we'll sell a few quarters and halves, not a ton. I, I don't focus on that. But there's a lot of people I've been filling their freezer with over 100 pounds of beef. And you could kind of sense hesitation on their face. They got burned last time on a quarter. Uh, they got a quarter that either was, was underfinished or it was grass-fed. They they weren't aware of what grass-fed beef exactly was, or it might have graded select. And there's a little hesitation when you get into that direct market. So trust is the biggest thing with us, and I, I'm sure there will become a time that, that somebody's unsatisfied with their product, and uh, I've yet to run into it. But um, you, you've got to kind of present yourself as uh, – it's kind of a resource because while, while I don't get questions at all on production practices because we eat it, my wife eats it, her family eats it, they trust us in that aspect it, as long as I'm telling them how to cook it. Okay, you don't like this type of cut, maybe you should try this cut. Uh, you're, you're still a resource for them that you see out there when we're, we're at national meetings. Hey, here's what, what beef councils are doing. Here's what your checkoff dollars are doing. You still need to know all the information because – I am going to get the question from somebody sometime about added hormones. And while no, we don't put added hormones to our, our beef, we, I guess I, one, I don't want to have to explain it to a typical little Kentucky consumer. I want to be prepared with that same answer as to there is absolutely nothing wrong with that, and I have no problem eating it. So it, it's a different kind of information you've got to have when, when those people are trusted. And, and looking back to, to Travis in Missouri, uh, obviously you have a great opportunity to, to bring people on on the farm and market your beef that way as well. Uh, and the just the background of, of in involvement with Certified Angus Beef, a very recognizable beef brand. What, what were some of the changes that, that you saw, uh, consumer ideas, uh, that, that uh, interaction as well, kind of the same line that we've been uh, discussing with Jake and Joe? What, what were some of those things you've picked up on and implemented uh, for your business model? The number one reason that we decided to go with Certified Angus Beef Brand was for the consistency and quality. Um, as Joe alluded to, you know, there's, there's lots of people trying to sell halves and quarters and a lot of them don't think about the quality grade. They might not have the genetics that are going to grade 50% prime or even upper choice. Um, so a lot of these people, they get that consistent quality. They come back for the, the consistency and quality. Um, the certified Angus beef brand, as you said, is nationally recognized. Everyone knows it when they see it. And it, it really helped to answer some of the questions because they have helped me along the way with um, – 
giving out information to the customers, having lots of signs to put out and things like that. Um, we also do not sell any beef that's below choice. We try to shoot for upper two-thirds of the minimum. Obviously, with CAB, that's where we're at. Um, one thing that I thought was going to be an issue was pricing. We have not had an issue competing with our even our upper, our higher-end grocery stores in our region. People want to come to the farm. They want to see the cattle. They want to talk to you, take the time. Um, I didn't judge meats or anything like that in high school or college, but I do feel really comfortable with explaining quality grades, cuts of beef. Um, my mom is a chef. My aunt works in the food industry. Um, so it's, it's really helped me get this store off the ground by having people that, that understand the other end of the f- of food service, not just the cattle and the meat side. And one another thing that we have going here is if someone wanted a half-inch ribeye, that's what they're going to get. If they want a two-inch ribeye, I have the means to cut that. So all of our certified Angus beef steaks are cut in-house. And a lot of people will call and they say, I want CAB prime filet, and I'm able to get that in. And they, and they fully understand that it's not always my beef when that comes in because I, I don't have a certified or a USDA grader in any of our local packer packing plants here, we kind of have to just trust our, our packer and our, our, our own eye to make sure these are, these cattle are choice or higher. You know, Travis, it's funny you say that about meat judging and, and whether it's in 4-H or FFA or, or even college. I, I, I remember in like intro to egg in the egg ed class, we had to obviously learn meat and I just wish I would have paid way more attention and actually got more involved because in college, those were my favorite courses and I love to cut meat, but there's just so much knowledge out there that I wish uh, I would have learned and we can always continue to learn, but that's uh, I, I know enough as well, but uh, I, I really wish I would have paid attention uh, at a younger age to a lot of that. But you, you brought up the food service aspect of it, the processing aspect of it, and, and that's what I hear from a lot of uh, my friends in the business that uh, are, are working with uh, these uh, smaller or medium or larger packing facilities uh, to, to get the, the product processed. And, and one of the big ones, especially up here in Montana, we don't have many USDA certified plants, and that's a huge barrier to expansion of direct-to-consumer up, up in our part of the world but what what are some of those things that that uh, obviously USDA uh, access is one of the things that you mentioned but what what are those other a- aspects that are real challenges when it comes to trying to get beef processed so you can uh, uh, have meat in in the meat case because that, that that's a really big issue when it becomes backed up and you can't get beef killed uh, the biggest issue that I'm seeing right now is getting an appointment. Everyone that owns a cow is going to try to sell sell beef right now. I called three local packers within the last two weeks. Um, at the beginning of those two weeks, the appointments were about June 1st to June 20th. There's not a single one of those that can get, get in before August 31st right now. I was able to make an appointment with a couple of those sooner than that. Um, but for the anyone else that's trying to get in, it's going to be really hard. So a lot of them these small local plants can't take a large carcass. We do every once in a while, like Joe said, you know, you get a heifer that doesn't breed. Well, if we've got a 15-month-old bull that does not pass a semen check or, or has something wrong that he's never going to be fertile, that goes in, into burger. And so we will sell a lot of burger patties, 
snack sticks, jerkies, and things like that out of those and be able to make more money than we can at the at a sale barn by selling a cold bull right now. But there's a lot of places that can't get large cattle in, so it's been kind of a an issue there. And then logistics becomes another issue. With, with the place in Kansas City, we could take several head up there. They were on feed for a while before they were killed. And it was pretty easy. With this here, you know, you've got to just hope that if you have to make an appointment on August 31st, that you have something that's, that is fed exactly to where it needs to be. And I personally cannot make the guarantee that, that my steers will be be too green or they'll be too fat at that point. I want to kind of hit that quality grade right where I want it. And by making appointments this far out, that's really hard to do. Yeah, definitely. And Joe, for you as well, uh, again, it's, it's, we we're focusing, you know, obviously in the time of uh, COVID-19, but, uh, what are some of those challenges, uh, without a pandemic going on that, that you faced, um, trying to, trying to, to get the, uh, a processing date scheduled and then maybe how COVID has impacted also your scheduling as well. But, uh, uh, well, before COVID-19, what, what were we looking at on some of those challenges and getting processing completed? Well, guys, Travis said right there, those logistical challenges. And we, all three of us were obviously in Washington, D.C. together. And uh, before I ever scaled up from that one heifer and I had those others on feed, it was kind of logistically, how do you move that much frozen beef? So kind of to backpedal just for a second, what Travis said on setting up an appointment, I like to call the day I put that animal on feed. I'm going to say, okay, they need 100 days or they need 100 fish or how many ever days they need on feed and book my appointment. And our part of the world, we're still pretty good on getting those appointments in. Um, now, I called back early April, and they only had about a three-week lead time. And so, I mean, that, that worked great. But I called last week, and they said June 18th was the soonest they could get. Uh, so we're not quite as backed up, but... They're only taking three to four head at a time. Uh, logistically, where we're bringing in freezer beef, everything's frozen. Uh, I, I kind of hammered Jake on this question probably three months ago. How do how do I move this stuff? He told me to go get a freezer trailer uh, because you you look, you, it's easy to take them on the hoof into the packing plant. But let's bring out I don't know sixteen hundred two thousand pounds of beef and keep it frozen and keep it safe and get it stored in a month or two. It takes you to distribute. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the bigger challenges we face with our direct marketing plan. Um, and especially where, where Jake said he's moving a lot of quarters. Hey, we just, we made 16 stops. We unloaded, we're done. Uh, but where I'm, I'm doing mine out 10 pounds at a time. Uh, that's kind of my biggest challenge, uh, from a space issue and especially an expansion issue going forward. Something my wife and I've talked about, um, dad kind of gave us the reins on this and said, you all do it if you want to do it. And looking at the number of, of beef we can keep frozen at a time and not, having to own too many freezers and take up too many room, too much space in the garage um, is the biggest issue. Uh, I think of anybody getting into the direct, uh, the direct marketing business. Um, and to, to echo one thing that, uh, that, that Travis said early, uh, one other logistical challenge, I don't, I don't think I've lost too many sales over it, but where he said, okay, we can cut a half inch trip or we can cut a two inch trip. We run the same standard cut sheet on every animal we do. So if they're, if they're really wanting ribeye sandwiches, well, I can't get it to them, you know, so that that's something to think about um, when, when it comes to your cut sheets logistically. How are you going to, to, to do that animal? What's going to be your standard uh, ribeye cut? What's going to be your standard strip cut? Are you going to do T-bones? Are you going to do strips and fillets? You know, those, those are kind of things you need to, uh, to be thinking about. Jake, uh, what, what would you like to add to this aspect of the conversation? 
Well, off off topic, Joe and I were talking a couple months ago about ways to hold large amounts of beef, and Joe, I've been in contact with a guy this last week about a new way of storing large amounts of beef very economically, so I'm going to have to get a hold of you on that later. Absolutely. So, for, for us, uh, you know, we do the, the, the large scale where, you know, we've got cattle and we take them to Aurora. We do it by the semi-load. They get treated no differently than the private cattle that we sell directly to consumer. There's no difference. But uh, for the large scale movement of cattle, the biggest issue that we are having right now is being able to get those cattle to the plant because the plants are working at reduced rates. The workers don't show up or they can't find enough people to unload the trailers, then they got to kill them. We had an incident here two weeks ago, uh, might have been three weeks ago, where we were taking trailers in to Aurora to get unloaded, and there was nobody there to unload them. So they had to ship those cattle back. So that's the issue that we're facing with right now, is that we don't have a way to get rid of these cattle. Aurora did open up their packing plant. They are killing animals. They're still working at a reduced rate. Their chains aren't moving as fast because they've got to scan everybody. But they've got 14 different languages spoken at their packing plant. So they've got to take a temperature on everybody, and then they got to scan everybody and ask them three questions and ask them about their COVID issues. So that's what we're having a problem with, with our cattle going there. And they told us that if your cattle weigh more than 1,500 pounds, we will not kill them. So all of a sudden, I'm talking to my nutritionist, and I'm asking him, hey, I've never had to ask you this before, but how do we slow our cattle down? Because we can't have them gain any more weight. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to sell them. So then we've got a bigger problem on our hands. If we've got all these cattle, we've got two loads of cattle, we might not know what we're going to do with them here in the next two weeks if we don't get them off our farm. On the smaller side of things with our private sales, you know, between the quarters and halves, our butcher shop is doing an amazing job. He's killing, I think he said he's killing 14 animals a day, and we have him booked 12 months in advance. So as soon as wow. I take an animal in to get butchered, I put my butcher date for the next 12 months. And I asked him how soon if I have to get another animal in here, and he said he's booked till January 1st, hogs and cattle. He says, I don't have any room for you. So a word to the wise out there, if you guys want to butcher your cattle and if you go to a private butcher, book your date in advance within a year. That way you have a confirmed date that you know your cattle are going to get killed on this date. You won't have an issue with scheduling anything like that. And with our smaller business that we're doing, I don't have a storefront, and I wish I did, but I'm kind of between Joe and Trav here trying to figure out what to do, and we're actually looking at buying a walk-in freezer so that we can store meat on hand. And if somebody comes and says, hey, you know, I want a steak or I want so many pounds of burger, but I don't have a deep freeze where I'm able to store 200 pounds of beef, because that's typically what you get is about 200 pounds and a quarter. They don't have room for it. They can come to us and they can just get a few select cuts and we can just put that in our shop and kind of show people, you know, the feedlot, show them where they are and then have the freezer right next door. And they can just walk in with us, pick out a steak they want, and that'll be the end of it. Jake, what are some other challenges, whether it comes to, to penciling uh, everything out to make sure that uh, you're able to, to make a profit or, or knowing what your losses are going to be in the coming weeks uh, on that end? Or just maybe what are some 
tips that uh, you learned uh, that you wish you would have learned when you started this or just some advice that you have for people out there in general that uh, I haven't asked about here yet? Because I think that's where we're going to really get in the meat of the topic is honestly just letting you three talk about uh, uh, the successes and the concerns you have about the direct consumer model. The biggest thing is know where your cattle come from. Go to the ranch or the farm that they come from and look at them before you even buy them. Look at them when they're three or 400 pounds. You know, go meet the guy, ask him what his records are on the cattle, what's his vaccination program like, what kind of bull does he have, what kind of cows does he have. You know, try and get a feel for what genetics are out there. Don't just go buy anything, but go to the farm and go directly to the person and buy from them. And that'll minimize a lot of stress on the cattle, yourself, and your shoot. The other thing is before we buy any cattle, we know what price we have to buy them at, what our input costs are, what our overhead is, and we know that day how much money we can spend on the cattle and still make a profit. And we work our scenario a little bit backwards, and some people might. We figure in our profit per head as an expense. So that as we're feeding the cattle, if you know you want to make, I'll just say, $50 a head, you're going to add that $50 in as an expense on the animal to pay yourself. So you know ahead of time, okay, I'm going to profit minimum $50 per head if I buy them at this weight, have these inputs, and sell them at this price. That's typically how we figure out how to market our cattle so that we can still stay profitable and I know a lot of people that don't contract their cattle. If they've got cattle going to a packing plant where they just do a cash load, and a lot of those guys are hurting right now because the packing plants are typically right now only taking contracted loads of cattle. Or if you didn't hedge them, they're not going to get bought. And there's a packing plant closer to Iowa, and they're booked for the next two months, and they aren't even giving bids out to people asking for them, even if they wanted to buy your cattle they can't do it because they're not giving out bids. Mm-hmm. So the biggest thing is have your marketing plan in place before you write the check. And the other thing is know your genetics, know where they come from. Yep. And maybe, Jake, I might expand on that. What do you, the producers that you buy calves from, What what is their take on this? Obviously, it's a great opportunity. They, they have a relationship with you, but how has that changed producers' mindsets about selling cattle or marketing, having that relationship directly with you, knowing actually where that end product is going to end up? It's probably the best thing we could ever do is build a relationship with the cow-calf producer because we can buy from him. I've got several people that we buy from, we bought from for years. We don't go anywhere else to buy cattle. And it's a very simple conversation to say, hey, how much money do you want per head? They throw us a price. We agree on it. The other thing, if you want any additional changes to the herd, you've almost got some leveraging power because you can tell them, you know, hey, I would like to see more semitol genetics or i want more black angus genetics or i want you to have a hereford bull and cross it with these black angus cows or i want you to have a charlay bull and mix it with these shorthorn cattle you've got leverage where you can say buy this animal or buy this cow if you're going to buy more cows you can advise them on what to buy because they know this guy's going to end up with these calves and he's going to keep coming back if we do what he wants but you have to gain that trust, and it takes a lot of time to gain that trust, mm-hmm. and we've done that very well so far. 
Joe, y- your thoughts on on any suggestions? Uh, uh, it's kind of kind of that same flow. If you want to add on on what Jake had to say, or just some thoughts that you have floating around right now. Yeah, I I think it's important, kind of what he said, to know your cattle. So while we aren't in the procurement side where he is, where I've got to go in and look at herds and vet herds. I mean, we we've been ultrasounding our our yearlings for 17 years now. So we, we've got a pretty good grasp on what they're like under the hide. Uh, but at the same time, you know your cattle. You know if a calf got sick, you probably don't want to be feeding it out. You know what it's going to do from a quality grade standpoint. Um, so we're, we're safe there. Uh, but as far as is any advice, anything I'd like to add to someone getting in this business, uh, I made a phone call to quite a few people before we started. Uh, some people who work with beef councils, uh, some nutritionists, some people that have sold before. And I said, tell me why this isn't a good idea. Why do I not want to do this? And I couldn't really get anybody saying no. Uh, one person did give me a piece of advice when it came to kind of doing what I'm doing, where you're dealing out packages where I'm not set up like Travis is to do cuts. All my cuts are at the butcher. I'm bringing it in frozen. Don't take custom cuts. Um, if someone's like, oh, I want this, but I want this next time probably shy away from it um and now if they want to buy whole beef yeah let's do it but if you're looking at the retail value where you're dealing out beef from that animal you're, you're bumping three thousand dollars but so someone's coming in there and saying oh I, w- I want a five bone rib roast and i want it to do this and this well off my math they need to be taking about 40 or 50 pounds of ground beef with that because i'm giving up the ribeyes and they're probably not going to take it so i've only had about two people ever i've lost sales from because I wouldn't custom cut. And kind of the interaction after uh, the response or the lack of response I got from them told me I was probably better off not having them as a customer anyway. Uh, so while you can be agreeable, and if it's something you're considering making a, a standard cut anyway, that's fine. But don't don't get caught up on, on getting a $50 sale and, and cutting a certain cut a certain way. It's a lot easier to say, no, this is just the way we do it. Um, and another thing I got told to me, was from a marketing standpoint, talk to a graphic designer. Get, get you a logo. Uh, mo- most of our marketing, actually mo- all our marketing, is through an Instagram account. I mean, it, it, we get a lot of reshares, and it, we just have a good logo, and it, it looks like a professional operation. I, I know my wife told me when we started, uh, we're, we're not going to halfway do this, and you're just dealing meat out of a truck bed in the parking lot. Like We're, we're going to make it look professional. Uh, so we, we've got handwritten thank you cards we give with our logo at the top of the letterhead. We put a business card in there. Everything looks professional. Um, I, I think that's a big part of it, especially the, the market I'm in. I'm pulling in these nice neighborhoods uh, with, with a truck with freezers in the back. You don't want to take the old farm truck and mud all over it. You want to kind of give a pretty good presentation uh, if you're going to be doing what I'm doing and, and more in the delivery business. And uh, kind of to, to piggyback on what, what Jake said, make sure it's worth your time. Well, why are we doing this? Uh, I, I said in the beginning, the only reason I'm doing this is because a heiferet's not worth much. A free Martin heifer's not worth much. I mean, that's that's mainly what we feed out. So we, we made a little money there. But if, if we're not going to make money selling on the back end, I eat plenty of beef. We can put it in the freezer. We can eat it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I had someone factory in a 30% margin because i got to tank a gas going to Louisville. I've got freezer bags that I deliver in. Take every single expense and make, make sure you get paid for your time. Um, that, that's the major thing because if, if this is a break-even thing, direct marketing, it, it takes far too much of my time at night sitting on my phone, responding to messages, working on an Excel sheet, talking to a butcher. Uh, and it, it never fails. It's a busy day that I got to go take beef or pick up beef. 
Uh, so if you're going to do it, it's it's a business. Uh, we we need to treat it like a business. It's not just a one-off cap that you sold a few quarters out of and made a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars a head might work if you're if you're taking it to the to the packer. Uh, but if you got to take it to the butcher, pick it up from the butcher, and deliver it uh, about 20 different ways, $100 doesn't work too well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one thing to keep in mind. Joe, you've mentioned quite a lot uh, resources that uh, your state beef council and the national uh, beef promotion programs ha- have uh, uh, provided you. Uh, wh- where would you be without some of those uh, materials, and, and why, why is it important to uh, utilize all the research and promotion that, that the checkoff uh, provides, uh, not just uh, a business model like yours, but but for all uh, cattlemen and women? The, the resources the Beef Council kind of provides us, one, if you get involved and you ask questions, the opportunities you get to learn from them and take their experience translate very well to the consumers. I mean, the we, we do a good job with our Kentucky State Beef Council. They do a really, really good job with outreach during the Kentucky Derby. Um, yeah. all throughout the year, but they're very experienced in talking to consumers too. So if you talk to your own state beef councils, they're going to tell you, here are the problems we see. Here is where people have failed trying to do what you've done. Because guess what? If somebody's tried to direct market beef, they've probably talked to the people at the beef council before too. Uh, but when it, when it comes to the resources I use, um, beef, it's what's for dinner.com might as well be my website. Cause when I tell somebody, Hey, I'm out of roast, but I got short ribs. And they say, oh, well, what, what about short ribs? Uh, how do you cook those? I literally go to beefitswhatsfordinner.com, punch in short ribs, pick the first recipe I think looks good, and they say, absolutely, I'll take that. So that that's one of the biggest assets I have in my business model it, with them trusting me is that if I don't have a flank steak, but I got a flap steak, and say, hey, you can do this, here's a recipe. Or if I'm out of ribeyes, but I've got some inch, inch and a quarter chuck steaks, they trust me. And so it, using those resources we have on, on anything, beef it's what's for dinner.com, um, anything from a sustainability standpoint, I, I said earlier, I haven't run into that, but it, that's the one thing I think top ahead, you want to be prepared to answer uh, if anyone has a concern as far as consuming beef. Um, but there's so many resources out there. We, we could talk about those for hours, but if Call call your state beef council. They they've got them, and they they probably interact with the consumers more than you have. So what I'm getting is that uh, that one dollar per head check off that that you pay and that I pay is is really worth worth the time, right? Yeah, and what, one thing I with, with COVID and everything going on, I, like I said, Kentucky has a big push during Derby season. Well, April and May was blocked out for our beef council to, to go to all these trade shows and interact with all these consumers. And I just contacted them a couple of weeks ago. I said, "Is there anything that you all usually distribute?" It's these, like, you want me to put with my customers' packages, you know, like uh, re- recipe cards, stickers, goodies, that type of thing. They said, absolutely, we would love if you would do that. So if you're set up with, in a delivery model or a farmer's market or, or retail, you can, they'll give you those resources. They are more than happy. The, the one thing people love the most are those beef cut sheets uh, where it's like, okay, here's everything in the round and the chuck. Uh, I know we got one in my refrigerator, and every time my buddies come over, it goes missing. I take it from so consumers, consumers love those cut, big cut sheets. Uh, they can put it on the refrigerator, too. So talk to your beef council, get get those things. Uh, Travis, what what would you like to share? Uh, some things that um, we haven't covered yet or, or some uh, topics you want to expand on? I've got to kind of say just some of the same things that the other two guys did. Knowing your genetics, knowing how to feed cattle, plays a big part in it. We, by From being a seed stock uh, 
operation, we sell 50 to 60 bulls a year. We, we keep our cattle to the feedlot. So we have feed data, carcass data. We knew what our cattle were going to do going into this, and we knew how we could, which genetics in, within our herd were a little more efficient on the feed side. So we were able to kind of factor in there which ones would come off a of feed quicker, which ones required less feed. Um, we test several bulls every year, so we, we make sure we test a few of each sire group. Um, and then as far as the marketing, social media has been one of our biggest things. We've taken advantage of all forms of free marketing that we can. We've joined a, a few of the local chambers of commerce around, and they share everything we do on Facebook with their members. They join us for – they have us join them for, for events. They buy our products. I served 300 of our burgers last year for, for a Chamber of Commerce appreciation lunch. And after that, I sold out of pre-made burger patties because the people, they were able to come and talk to me while I was grilling. I made sure and I stayed there with the Chamber of Commerce and I interacted with everybody. I had tons of questions. The, um, the Beef Council, I get a lot of information there. So in our storefront here, we have ton, all the information that the Beef Council gives us as well as certified Angus beef brands. Um, we push people towards the Chuck Nose Beef app or the mm -hmm. Roast Perfect app of certified Angus beef. You can download it on your phone, look it up, um, beefthatswatsfordinner.com. I use it all the time for myself and for customers. We have some marketing that certified Angus beef did for us where they put some recipes on one side and then a little bit about our farm and our shop on the other side. So we've tried to make sure we can use all forms of marketing and obviously the free marketing is wonderful because that takes a little bit of load of our advertising costs. Recently, the Missouri Cattlemen's Association has put out a directory for, for the guys that are doing the direct to the consumer marketing. So that's available through the mocattle.org. Guys can go on there and find producers all over the state of Missouri that are close by and give them a call. It'll direct you to their websites, Facebook pages, things like that. Well, and that was going to be my, my next uh, point, gentlemen, is just the marketing. Uh, and, and Joe uh, dived into that on his end, how uh, Instagram plays a big part. But, but Travis, when you think about uh, the times that you, that you have to spend on social media, um, I guess, do, do you do that yourself? Do you hire that out? And, and, and uh, how much more money would it probably cost you if uh, the if the uh, checkoff resources, the educational uh, videos, the recipes, everything that they produce, you couldn't afford to do that yourself and reach the millions of people that they uh, reach? What what does your marketing plan look like? And and you mentioned how the how the beef uh, uh, checkoff promotion plays into that, but uh, what what does your marketing plan look like? Right now, we're still in a transition period due to the closing of the Valley Oaks um, processing plant. But like Joe said, you've got to have a good logo that looks nice. You, everything needs to look nice. If you're just selling some things, you just don't really have a logo, kind of like he said, you know, taking the old feed truck to town. You know, we, we make everything look nice. We do some farmer's markets whenever the weather works out because I pretty much do all of that myself. So time is very limited. So I have to dedicate a certain day each week or each month, however many steaks we're selling to cut beef. A lot of times those are some really late nights for us. So on the social media side, I do that. I, I actually have our farm page and another Angus association that I run. I'm not the most tech savvy, but 
I used the resources from the checkoff and CAB to to pass on through those Facebook pages and kind of rely on the people around to share those things and keep them moving. Uh, Jake, I'm going to jump up to you because Joe uh, shared his uh, marketing a little bit, but uh, uh, what what does your business model look like uh, when it comes to reaching out to consumers, utilizing social media or whatnot? Uh, how, do you, how do you all set that up? Yeah, so I... These two other gentlemen are probably going to laugh at me when I say this, but I have absolutely zero marketing. The only thing I have is our cattle brand, and that is it. I don't have website. I don't have uh, any social media platform, and I've been told by everybody that that's the way I need to go, and I'm actually looking into that. I just haven't had time to do it, and after talking today, it's, it's really forcing me to think that that's the way to go. My marketing has strictly been word of mouth. Mm-hmm. People have a cookout, and somebody says, hey, where did you get this? And they explain where they got it from, and then I get a phone call, and they say, hey, I'd like a quarter, or, hey, I'd like a half, and that's how my advertising goes. It is strictly word of mouth. And then anybody that buys a quarter beef, I send them a decal logo of our cattle brand, and they can put that on their fridge, grill, back of their car, or whatever. So that's the only marketing I have is a little 4 by 6 sticker of our brand. <laughs> well, hey, like I said, word of mouth is very big still, too. But uh, it's just amazing how all types of media, whether it be social media, a newspaper ad, or, of course, the word of mouth, really do promote uh, all that we do. And, and uh, God, I, I've learned so much from all of you. Uh, I guess, what are some last things? Because I know you were all busy. We're, we're coming up on an hour of having this conversation. What are some, some last-minute tips that you want to share that we did not uh, really dive into here, whether it is that relationship with your customer, uh, the relationship with the processor, uh, the uh, quality of, of cattle, uh, genetics, uh, just just anything that uh, you want to share with our listeners here today that are, that are all a part of the livestock industry here in the United States and, and how this is an opportunity that they can be a part of. I guess my first question is, is there enough room in the direct to consumer marketplace i think there is what what are your thoughts and we'll start with jake on that so i think there's plenty of room there are you know with world population rising there are so many people that want to know the story of where their food comes from they want to go to the farm i honestly it's hard for me to keep up with how much meat we have to move every year and it only increases we've never had a decrease in years past where we've had customers not come back everybody's came back and we've always had more the only thing though is always have room to expand and you always got to be thinking about what's going to happen not next year but three years down the road that's a minimum for us is thinking what's going to happen in the next three years how are we going to be able to do whatever we're doing and do it better in that time frame the other thing is if you ever do have a negative experience with somebody or you have a customer that's not satisfied with one of your products the biggest thing to do is to make it right Whatever it may be, give them a discount or give them 10% off or throw in a free steak next time. But do your best at whatever it may be to make it right with that customer. You may not gain their confidence back, but it's a less chance that they'll have something bad to say about it and more of a chance saying, you know, hey, this steak wasn't the best. But when I went back and told him about it, you know, he made up for it in this way, and that was nice. Mm -hmm. So that's probably the best thing that we've found out is if we have an issue, make it right. We've had very, very, very few issues. I think we've had three issues in the last 10 years of us doing this. 
and we've never really had a problem with it. And the best thing is it makes customers happy. Joe, uh, what are are your thoughts? Uh, I'm with Jake there. I I think the room in the marketplace for what the three of us are doing is pretty unlimited. Uh, One thing I always think back to, the projections before COVID were, what, 57 pounds per person uh, for beef consumption in 2020. When we look at Louisville, the metro area is, I don't know, 2 million people. I can't begin to supply all of them. So you, you don't have to have everybody. There's there's plenty of room at the table for, for all of us. But one thing to remember is Jake referenced, he's been doing this since he was a teenager, and he's able to go out and sell quarters, halves, and holes. And I'll move some quarters and some halves, but to go out and get somebody to make, after a freezer, nearly a $3,000 investment, or nearly $1,000 investment in a quarter, is a lot to ask. So don't think you're just going to start day one put 20 cattle on feet and go out and sell 80 quarters because it's not going to happen. You're going to be stuck with a big kill bill and you're going to be stuck with a lot of, a lot of beef out there. Um, so kind of know your customer base that you're going to draw into before you ever have one killed, uh, do one or two, start small and then kind of grow into it slowly. Uh, we're kind of at the point we're starting to hit a little bit of growing pains. I think Jake and I kind of touched on it earlier with, with freezer storage where, okay, I can take six beef on hoof in our 20-foot gooseneck, no problem. I can get a process it. My process, my process do that fine. But bringing back six beef in all those freezers and storing it, that starts to become tricky. And the fewer trips you have to make to the butcher, the more profit you have there. So for you to jump and say, oh, I'm going to go do, I'm going to get an appointment for a dozen. You, let's back that up a little bit. Let's figure out how we're going to get a dozen, dozen moved, a dozen stored. Um so my, my piece of advice, don't be afraid to deal in those bundles like we do. Take, don't don't sell anything before you, you get it back. So when, when you have your cut sheet, they're going to give you a printout of what you have. And make sure you're not stuck with 100 pounds of ground beef that's, that's a little tough to sell. Uh, and then, then one final thing I, I kind of give there, don't apologize for your price, especially if you're selling a differentiated higher-end product. You're not going to compete with Walmart. At all. It's not going to happen. So what I did when I started pricing our product, I went into uh, Fresh Market, who sells high choice and they sell prime. I went into Whole Foods and I looked, okay, what is their price per pound on these cuts? So I took their price per pound. I put my bundles together and I added about 5 or $10 to cover my freezer bag and my trip to their house once I was in Louisville. And I've yet to have anybody back up on price on any of my bundles. Now they, they might've inquired about a tomahawk rib buy or something like that. Hey, what's that? And yeah, not everybody wants to pay $45 for a steak at home, but don't apologize for your price. Don't give discounts. Know what your average animal is going to do. Know what it's going to cost. And that's the price. And, uh, I'd say if you're getting started, don't, uh, don't get stuck with more product than you want to eat the next couple of years. If, if it doesn't work out like you thought it was. Mm-hmm. Travis, uh, your thoughts. I'd say that um, I always have to stress with the guys that I talk to that are interested in this, going back to know your genetics, know your cattle, know how to feed cattle. Um, we've had to kind of talk to some guys also about ways they, they need to understand the yields per the, the carcass has. So we've, I know there's some guys that have had some issues with buying beef directly from a customer from a, from a producer and they don't understand that that, that cat's only going to yield 65% of that, that live weight on the hoof. And so 
there's people that have been burned on that, so they think. They don't understand what costs we have in these cattle. They think that they're paying that live weight and they're going to get 1,200 pounds for that, of meat out of that 1,200-pound steer. That's not how it works. We understand that. So developing a relationship with your customers and they, so that they know what you do and why we do what we do and gaining trust. Joe, like Joe said, you know, you've, you've got to gain the trust from your, from your customers so that they come back time after time. Word of mouth will spread faster. And as Jake said, take care of your customers. Don't ever leave anybody hanging on a bad experience. Well, none of us want to have a bad experience, but a bad experience will travel a lot faster than a good one. Uh, my final uh, topic, I uh, honestly, I could keep talking to you guys for the next two or three hours. Uh, I think we're going to have to follow up this show down the road with some more advice and things that maybe you uh, you want to share down the road. Let's say you have a cow-calf producer that has the opportunity to, to find a, a plant nearby that where you could process your food. Uh, process the beef, excuse me. How do they have to look at their time differently? They're not just uh, raising a calf and selling it in the fall. They're investing in that animal until it is on a plate. How much more time, how much more resources, how much more mental strain should they prepare themselves for? And uh, how many people really need to weigh the pros and cons of of doing this? And Travis, I'll, I'll start with you, or if, if, if the three of you just want to jump in in any order you want, uh, it's kind of my, my final question. I think that uh, everyone needs to weigh all of the pros and cons going into this. You need to see how many producers are in your area doing it, uh, the farmer's markets, how much marketing you need to do, how much time, and how much confidence you have in your product. I think confidence is another one of those things that you need in your product. And like Joe said, you need to have that pricing set up front and don't apologize for selling a premium product where it's supposed to be. And one thing that we've done is we will once a month go to several different grocery stores and check the prices, do our research, and understand exactly what we're getting into before the the calves are ever killed. Joe, any last thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I think to do it and do it right, it's going to take a lot of your mental time. Um, I know when I go home at night, I'm not just hopping on social media and scrolling mindlessly. Uh, I'm thinking, okay, what do I have in the freezer? What do I need to move? What packages do I need to move? Uh, what, what consumers have I talked to this week? Uh, do I have their order in stock? What, what, it becomes almost your full-time job. Well, it might not be physically demanding, like going out and feeding and working cattle. It does take some of your mental time. Um, so if you're not willing to give that, I would almost shy away from it. Um, we're to the point now, if, if we kind of, and I know we're not going to continue on the COVID pace. We were set up, we got kind of lucky where we were doing delivery anyway. Uh, so the doorstep delivery just kind of fit right into to what everybody else's retail models have become uh, over the last few weeks. So I'm not expecting our, our rapid pace like we have had, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's unreasonable for somebody to go out and if they have a hundred hundred head herd to be able to do 30, 40, 50 in a calendar year, if they're willing to put in the legwork on social media marketing, uh, I, I'd say I probably borderline on paranoid when it comes to the meat quality that someone's going to have a bad experience. Uh, I kind of know my lot numbers on what, on what beef we've sent. I make sure I pretty much test anything out from at least I pull a, a steak. I pull some ground from every animal we have in and cook before I distribute. Uh, when it comes to quarters, I don't 
oversell on pre-sale. I give myself an extra animal for if one does not end up like it should be. Um, I mean, it, it becomes a, if you're marketing seed stock, I probably put as much effort into marketing beef as I do marketing seed stock right now. Um, so to, to be successful with and do a good job with it, uh, and have any kind of, I guess, quicker turnaround, uh, you're going to be putting it in, or you're going to be going the model Jake's done. He's been doing it since high school and his, his word of mouth is strong enough to kind of make what he's doing work really, really well for him. Um, so if you're going zero to 60 with it, be ready to put a lot of time in it. Jake, your last thoughts. So I got to say, there's a lot of good advice here between the other two guys on the phone. I think we're doing a really good job here. So when I designed our feed lot, it took me three years to finally go around and talk to every other producer that has a building similar to what I wanted, find out what they did, what they would have done different, what they did wrong and how they can make it right. The biggest thing anybody can do is go out and talk to somebody that's already doing this, but make sure you're not talking to your next door neighbor because that might cut into some profit potential knowing, Hey, my next door neighbor is going to go out and do the same thing I'm doing. Maybe travel out 10 or 15 miles and go talk to somebody, find out what they're doing, how they do it and how they make it work. And they will have the best advice because they've made mistakes already and they'll tell you how not to make mistakes. And they will be more than willing to help anybody else out doing the same thing that they're doing as long as they're not right in their backyard. One thing that Joe said earlier is don't undersell or apologize for your price. That's a huge thing is that, you know, we are doing this kind of, you know, on a private deal, private basis. It is a value added product that we are raising for these people and giving them a good quality meat, you know, and whatever price we have, as long as it's within reason, you should not have to justify that cost. But back to my point, the biggest thing is find somebody that's already done what you're doing, get advice from them, take your time going into it. Uh, A lot of this does take a lot of time and a lot of effort. So the best thing you can do is just talk to others, see what they did, and hopefully go from there. Well, gentlemen, uh, truly, I, I've learned so much here today, and I know our listeners have too. And it, one thing is for sure, post-COVID-19, whenever COVID-19 uh, concludes and the impact that it has, it's going to be an interesting marketplace, no doubt, uh, for consumers and in, in how they purchase food. And one thing about it, uh, the models and the businesses that you all have going right now, it... it uh, it truly shows the adaptability that livestock producers have in making sure that consumers have a safe, nutritious protein, that, of course, being beef. Uh, for our listeners, I will share all the information and social media links, uh, except for Jake, since he doesn't have social media. But uh, we'll share those uh, links on uh, on the description of the podcast as well. But uh, again, Jake, Joe, and Travis. I know you're all busy. Thank you so, so much for for taking the time and talking about your business models. And I hope to meet you all in person and and we can continue this conversation because there's a lot more that we can discuss to to help uh, folks in the countryside uh, uh, look at their businesses just a little bit differently. So, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right, friends. That will do it for today's Cattleman's Call podcast. Thanks for answering the call. For more information to to subscribe, make sure and visit us online at ncba.org. We're available on those Android and iPhone devices. If you have any questions or suggestions for future calls, make sure and shoot us a note there on the Cattleman's Call tab on the website. That'll do it for today. I'm Lane Nordlund. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. 
For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.